be open to outcomes. The bottom line is this. You have a choice in how you expend your energy. If you decide you want to fight a change, fight it intentionally. Direct your energy to what matters most and is most within your sphere of influence, using your most refined skills and making sure you're not acting out of ego. And then give it your all. Make sure you're checking in with yourself about how much energy you've been using. It's a really good idea to use all of your energy to manage one change and check in on the cost of fighting this fight. At the same time that you challenge an unwanted change, you also need to do something challenging. You need to find a way to be open to outcomes. This is a paradox. Work with vision and commitment, leverage your resources and energy to reach that vision, and at the same time, be open and be unattached to what you're envisioning. Here's why. Being open to outcomes allows us to be flexible and adaptable. Even if we're well-informed and pushing on an unwanted change in collaboration with others, we still can't know everything. Remain open to possibilities. If a proposal or solution is put forward, consider it even if, it's, if, even if it isn't exactly what you want. Keep talking and listening to everyone and anyone. When my school was threatened, we rallied and organized and resisted. Then we were approached with an idea that we never considered. Our campus would merge with another. Class sizes would increase somewhat, but we've had double the support staff, more prep time, and others who taught the same content with whom we could collaborate. We had to make some compromises, and there were some minor annoyances, but we not only eliminated the threat of obolitarian, but we also ended up with something far better than what we had before the threat. What makes it hard to be open to outcomes is that we have to manage our uncertainty and live with the unknown. Uncertainty is a shade of fear that unsettles us and makes us want things to stay the same. The habit discussed in this book will help you manage that fear. You can also ride the uncertain wave of change by holding an immersed picture of yourself, which includes recognizing that there's a lot of you don't and can't know. The ability to hold that perspective emerges in part from trust, which is the disposition we'll consider in Chapter 12. Equanimity is a mental and emotional state that is invaluable when we're dealing with change. It can allow us to be open to outcomes, to look at a situation and say, right now, this is how things are, even if we don't like it or we wish it were different. Equanimity makes room for a fuller perspective on things. It isn't about repressing feelings or being different or resigned. It is about accepting whatever is happening in a particular moment. By cultivating a state of equanimity, our attachment to outcomes gets a little looser. We can simultaneously remain open to outcomes and take action to stop or lead a change. The story in Exhibit 11.2 may be, said the farmer is a favorite of mine when navigating uncertain waters. It, is not it not only acknowledges that dealing with the unwanted change is complex and hard, but also reminds us to be open to outcomes and hold an expansive perspective. After you read it, you might find yourself saying, maybe, whenever a change rolls in. Exhibit 11.2, maybe, said the farmer. Once upon a time, there was an old farmer who had worked his crops for many years. One day, his horse ran away, 
Upon hearing the news, his neighbors came to visit. Such bad luck, they said sympathetically. Maybe, the farmer replied. The next morning, the horse returned, bringing with it three older wild horses. How wonderful, the neighbors exclaimed. Maybe, said the old man. The following day, his son tried to ride one of the untamed horses and was thrown and broke his leg. The neighbors came again to offer their sympathy for his misfortune. Maybe, said the farmer. The day after, military officials came to the village to draft young men into the army. Seeing that the son's leg was broken, they passed him by. The neighbors congratulated the farmer on how well things had turned out. Maybe, said the farmer. The secret to leading change. If we navigate unwanted change, we may arrive at a place where we can be proactive and lead change that benefits others. The following suggestions apply to, to you whenever, wherever a teacher wanting to change a classroom culture, a principal trying to guide a staff in a, in a whole school change, or a coach aspiring to help your clients become aware of their unconscious bias. Let's jump straight to the secret. Deal with fear. Deal with fear, that's the biggest secret. Many leaders don't recognize, acknowledge, or manage fear when they're trying to lead change. Not that their fear or that of others. We humans are fearful creatures and we're poorly equipped to deal with it. In my first full-time role as a literacy coach, I aspired to change the teaching practices at the middle school where I worked. When I visited classroom, I observed teachers sitting at their desk reading while students worked on grammar exercises in silence. There were no agendas or outcomes shared with students, and teachers told me they didn't write lesson plans. Eighth graders read from fourth grade texts, and lessons rarely co correlated to state standards. Furthermore, when I reviewed the school data, I found that our students' literary skills dropped steadily during the years they attended our school. When our eighth graders graduated, their skills would be lower than what they were when they arrived as sixth graders. Only 3% of the eighth graders read on grade level. When I began advocating for learning targets, lesson planning, and relevant curriculum, and engaging instructional practice, I received pushback. <clears throat> this made me push harder. The resistance got stronger. I'd become more resolved. Have you ever been in this kind of situation? It was tiring. There was uncertain, unnecessary suffering. In the end, it didn't really work. In some classrooms, instructions and outcomes improved, but not consistently and not across the school. At the time, I didn't recognize how afraid the teachers were when I was suggesting they change their practice. They were afraid they wouldn't be able to do what I was asking of them to do, and they were afraid of being publicly exposed for what they didn't know or didn't want to do. Unconsciously, they were also afraid of losing their identity. Many of these teachers had spent years becoming the teachers they were, and I was insinuating that they needed to abandon that identity and become something new, something they couldn't imagine. Not only is that scary, but inherent in the demands was the notion that they weren't doing a good job. Fear and the threat of shame are limited tools. Sometimes they generate compliance, but they're not sustainable, and they're not transformational. Fear and shame wear us all down. Both those leveraging the tools and those on the other end. I feel an intense urgency to change things at the school, but I didn't manage my urgency well. Peeling back the layers of emotion, I recognized my sadness for the students, my fear that I wouldn't be able to ex 
improve their experience, my anger at the dysfunctional system and the people who upheld it, my impatience with those who weren't acting on the timeline I thought they should act on, and my own ego and ambition to change things. The secret to leading change is to recognize the emotions while experiencing them, to recognize the emotions that others experience, and to have strategies to deal with what we see. If you have a tiny inner dictator, you might believe that it brings some value to your practice. I wish I could tell you that the club welding urgency procedures results or the hand holding accountable is the magic that's needed to make them do what they what you want them to do. I wish I could share tracking tools, short feedback scripts, and examples of teachers who changed because I gave them clear directions, but I can. I have a list of at least two dozen transactional approaches I used to try to get people to change, and none of them worked. There were months of compliance, and then there was resistance, sabotage, and more of the same ineffective teaching. Nothing changed for kids, and I felt depleted and depressed. These ineffective tactics danced around the underlying emotions. The secret to change is to deal with emotions, our own and those of others, and especially to deal with fear, because what many of us tried in an effort to produce quick results has not worked. Yet, it takes time to deal with emotions, but there is no other option. Remember that change is about learning. In Chapter 9, we explored the feelings that arise during different stages of learning, the concepts of gaps and the conditions necessary for learning. Leading change often includes learning. In order for people to do something different, whatever it is that you want them to do, you need to address the skill, knowledge, capacity, will, cultural competency, and emotional intelligence. When you are leading change, the conscientious competence ladder and the Mind the Gap framework will provide useful guidance. They will remind you that people need a lot of encouragement when they reach conscientious incompetence. You might reflect on how you can boost people's will and commitment to engage in a change initiative. You will need to articulate the skills and knowledge that people will acquire, and you'll need an understanding of the skills and knowledge with which they are starting. If you want people to change, you're asking them to grow. If you're asking for growth, you're asking for learning. As a facilitator or leader of this effort, you are responsible for creating optimal conditions for learning and thoroughly guiding them through the learning. Understand the backfire effect. Often we aspire to leave schools in change that involve getting people to do something different and thus changing their beliefs about something. Whether we are conscious of it or not, all of our actions merge from beliefs. If we want to change behaviors, we have to surface and explore and perhaps shift underlying beliefs. And in that process, we're going to confront fear again. Adam, a novice elementary school principal I coached who was concerned about the high number of students who were sent to the office and suspended, he wanted teachers to adopt a management approach in which students would receive warnings and be given opportunities to get back on track before immediately being sent out of the classroom. He also wanted teachers to use strategies to de-escalate situations with frustrated students and to give kids chances and not to be so rigid and controlling. At the August staff meeting, Adam rolled out the school's new management plan and tried to make a strong case for why it was necessary. He shared data on correlation between suspending kindergartners and dropout rates for high schoolers. He synthesized five years of office referral data from his school 
showing that students who were suspended were more likely to do poorly on state tests. He showed graphs, statistics of all kinds, and slides of brain imaging. He referenced university-sponsored research and longitudinal studies around the world. As I watched teachers listen to a 90-minute presentation, I noticed their brows furrow, their arms crossed over their chests, and their bodies reclined. When Adam finally stopped and asked for questions, he was faced with a barrage of objections. You're asking me to lower my expectations for our students, said one teacher, her voice shaking. Another slammed her hand on the table and added, we have to be firm with them from day one so that they know how to behave. A kindergarten teacher stood up and loudly said, you should praise me when I send students out. I'm holding them to our code of conduct, which got a round of applause. A respected veteran said, I've been teaching here for 26 years and my students' parents have always appreciated that my management matches theirs at home. We believe in being strict with our kids so that they'll learn to stay out of trouble. You're not even a parent. What do you know about raising kids here? During all of these statements, there were angry murmurings around the room. Adam calmly listened to the reaction and then said he had a lot to think about, and they continued the conversation the following week. Back in his office, Adam collapsed in his chair and said, what the hell happened back there? What happened, I explained. That's what's called the backfire effect, a term coined by political scientists in, back in 2010. This effect occurs when someone shares information with you that contradicts a strongly held belief, and your fear causes you to hold on to your belief even more tightly than before. The information backfires. Let's look more closely at this phenomenon. When you are surprised with information that challenges your beliefs, your brain responds as if you've come across a grizzly bear in a forest. Your adrenaline pumps as your system prepares to flight or flee. Your brain doesn't differentiate between the threat of physical harm and the threat to a mental model. So when the teachers at Adam's school listened to his presentation, what was threatened? Not just their beliefs about classroom management, but their mental model of themselves as educators. This self includes personal identity, the psychological self, and their political beliefs. They didn't hear Adam challenging their ideas or management practices. They heard a challenge to their very identities, identities they had built and fortified for de decades. It was even bigger than this, however, because a person's political beliefs and sense of self are usually connected to a larger social network, to a family, neighborhood, organization, religious community, or geographical region. In the case of Adam's school, the teacher's identity were tied to each other as well as the community in which they had worked and for some, the community in which they were raised. Adam's critique of the way they managed their students was an indirect critique of the way they raised and how they raised their own children. Many of us already feel defensive about where we come from, but we're especially unlikely to change a belief if it could put us at risk for being alienated from our community. So a threat to a belief is a threat to our social self. This is precisely why it's hard to change people's political beliefs, even in the face of mounds of contradictory evidence. The situation is not as dire as you might think. Remember, the biggest secret to leading change is to deal with fear. We instinctually and unconsciously protect our beliefs when we're confronted with situations that don't match up to our beliefs. When information comes at us, when it blindsides us or it pushes in our face, it will backfire. If you are a leader, create an experience in which the people whose minds you are trying to change feel comfortable and safe. 
You don't need to confront them. You don't need to shove information in their face. That's what researchers are finding. We are prone to choosing information and data that support our worldview while diminishing our dismissing evidence that contradicts it. However, we can expand and change our beliefs and heed corrective information we don't fear that our core identity will be crushed. Beliefs can change, even strongly held political beliefs that form the keys of our individual and social lives. I wanted to shock them, Adam confessed as he finished up our coaching session. I don't know if they know what they're doing to kids, he said, but clearly my approach didn't work. It took Adam a lot of work that year to repair the relationship with teachers, and it was several years before the teachers agreed to a new management system. How do you get people to change their mind and consider different practices is beyond the scope of this book, but here are some things that you can do to mitigate fear and help change beliefs. Number one, create opportunities for teachers to reflect on why they do what they do. Teachers need to organize that, teach, sorry, teachers need to recognize that we do what we do because of the resources and skill sets we have. Number two, humanize the need for change. Invite current and former students and their parents to talk about experiences in schools. Number three, set up structures for listening. We all need to refine our ability to listen to others. Number four, Talk about and normalize emotions, especially fear. Number five, collectively envision new realities. Guide people in creating alternative futures to see how things could be different for themselves and for the kids. Acknowledging context, when to fight the good fight. Pastor Niemöller, I know I totally butchered that, initially supported Adolf Hitler but became disillusioned and led a group of German clergymen in opposition to Hitler. For this, Neumoyer spent eight years in a concentration camp. His haunting words evoked the dangers of political apathy and the cataclysmic impact of indifference on other communities, as well as the danger we might face ourselves. The question, when do we fight the good fight, is a personal one anchored in deeply held values, morals, and our sense of responsibility towards others. We have to make choices about how we spend our energy. There is so much that we can't control and on which we have minimal influence. At the same time, there are moments when we are morally called to speak up, stand up, and do what's right. In this chapter, I invited you to think about what matters, to consider what you can influence, to use your energy with discretion, and to be open to outcomes. I have suggested that you become cautious in how you present people with information that will clash with their beliefs and social identities. But I am also advocating for change. I am hoping, in fact, that the strategies presented in this book will boost your resilience so that you have a surplus of energy, strength, and confidence to get out there and lead change. When we've moved out of survival and into thriving, we can create conditions on which others can also thrive. There are times we need to reflect on which changes matter most to us and ask ourselves about the cost of being complacent, silent, and afraid. These are times when we need to look at the facts from a range of sources, even facts and information that could threaten our social selves and put us at odds with our own families and communities. There are times when we need to recognize our privilege and consider how we can use that privilege on behalf of those less privileged. We must manage uncertainty 
and learn how to preserve relationships because the cost of not acting may be too high. We ourselves feel that we are doing in, is just a drop in the ocean, but the ocean would be less because of missing that drop. Mother Teresa. A dive into patience. I trusted Liz, my coach, tremendously, so I didn't recoil when she said, you are too impatient. You have got to work on that, and you're always going to feel frustrated as a teacher. Your impatience is a problem. She had set down her pen, leaned forward, and fixed her steady gaze on me through her glasses. In that moment, I recognized her experience and wisdom and knew she was speaking the truth. I'm often dissatisfied with the rate of change. When I have a vision for what a student needs to learn or how a school should function or how my life should be, I want to see it manifest now. My impatience makes me irritable. I want more control over timelines. Yet I don't have clear-headed decisions about what to do or say when I'm feeling impatient. High levels of impatience makes me feel perpetually dissatisfied. That's not an effective or powerful place from which to build relationships or lead and inspire others. It's also exhausting and wears down my resilience. Because of our emotions are so complex, what we feel or see on the surface is usually only one layer of the story. We're responsible for recognizing the outer layer and accepting it, but we must also explore the layers underneath. Below, my impatience as a teacher was a lot of anxiety. I worried about my students' future. I worried about whether they learn what they needed to learn. I worried about whether they'd be able to do a good job enough, if I'd be able to do a good enough job teaching them. I worried about whether their parents would approve of or appreciate what I was doing. I worried about whether my colleagues and principal would think I'm doing a good job. I worried that I wasn't enough. Anger also lurked beneath my impatience. One year when I worked in my school district central offices, I had a leader who didn't do things the way I thought they should be done. He also worked very slowly. I constantly felt frustrated with him, but honestly, it was more fear than I felt. I was anxious that my work would be ineffective if my supervisor didn't do what I thought he should do or wasn't who I needed him to be. I worried that I'd fail in my efforts and that my time would be wasted. Patience is emotion and a skill. Impatience is often triggered by events outside of our control, ones we think should be different. Patience begins when we accept ourselves and the way things are. To do this, we need courage and trust. Patience is not passive, passivity or resignation. It doesn't prevent us from drawing boundaries around how people treat us. Patience is kind of a power. It can increase your compassion and help you see the big picture and get clarity on when you act. Patience is about being honest with yourself, recognizing your underlying anger or fear, and then letting go of the stories that you hold about others. Patience calls on us to be fully present and pay attention to exactly how things are in the moment. It opens the field of awareness and possibility. I work a lot to cultivate a state of patience. Maintaining a broad perspective and being able to see the bright spots are useful. Practicing meditation is essential. I am far more patient when my mind is settled. Engaging in contemplative activities also helps. Patience can fuel tenacity, which is a key trait of resilient people. When remaining open to what happens, when accepting things as they are, when holding a long view, I have more energy to preserve without clinging 
to desired outcomes. Disposition, perseverance. The highlight of my teaching life was when I helped start a new school in Oakland. One of the four core values was perseverance. And when I taught the sixth grade that first year, I worked hard to cultivate this disposition in my students. In the spring, we took our sixth graders to the Grand Canyon. On the afternoon, we hiked up the canyon. And Veronica said, now I know what you guys talked about perseverance and why we read the little engine that could so many times. She stopped to catch her breath and her friends began chanting, I think I can, I think I can. Later, Veronica said, I realized on the hike that I just had to put one foot in front of the other and not care about how sweaty I looked. I just thought about how I'd feel in the end. Every time I felt my legs were going to give out, I said to myself, I can do this. I didn't need to think, I just had to do it. I remember times when school was hard and I reminded myself that I have done hard things before. And I've never felt as proud as when I got to the top of that canyon. Resilient people are tenacious and contemplating challenge, challenges strength. Resilient people are tenacious and contemplating challenges strengthens this disposition. That's why when the storm of change knocked us down or we come to the mountain that we want to climb, we are strengthened by the journey of ascent and recovery. We thrive in the aftermath, we bask in the internal reservoirs of resilience with which we have reconnected and that we have filled up because resilience is always within us and it often needs to be replenished. Yet in order to cultivate perseverance and tenacity, you must look beyond short-term concerns and long-term goals. You need to put off immediate gratification and manage your impatience. You must also venture beyond your comfort zone and take on challenges of different sizes so that you can learn and increase your confidence. As you work on boosting your tenacity, you'll have to view setbacks as opportunities for growth. And you'll need strategies, such as behaviors and habits discussed in this book, for dealing with obstacles that show up on your path. More than anything, you'll need to move to take a thoughtful, intentional action and keep moving until you get to where you want to be. Next time you're facing a challenge, in order to access your tenacity, remind yourself of what matters and why you're doing whatever you're doing. Acknowledge your fear and tell yourself that you can do whatever you're trying to do. And then put one foot in front of the other and move. Waves can be fun. My son who loves the ocean took his first surfing lesson at 13. I watched as he caught wave after wave gracefully standing up on the board and riding the waves to shore. It seemed effortless. At the end of his lesson, Ian, his Hawaiian instructor, complimented his skills. He's a natural, Ian said. He's focused, determined, has good judgment in the water. For this third reason, Ian decided that my son was ready for real waves and took my child about a mile out into the Pacific Ocean, farther than we could see with the naked eye. When they returned a couple hours later, my son was beaming. It was awesome, he said over and over. I grilled him on the experience. Were the waves big? Did you get knocked down? Was he scared? Did he fall? Was it deep? Were there sharks? It was fun, Mama, he said, re reorienting my question. Some of the waves were big and I felt nervous, but I trusted Anne. So I stayed calm and focused. And if a wave was really big, I went under it. Then it would get too calm and boring, so then I'd ride out to get a wave. 
And when I got up on my board and I felt the breeze and the rush of the water, it was totally awesome. It's good to spend time with kids because they remind us that age and experience can narrow our perception of events. Change doesn't have to be terrifying. If we find a way to coast through the tumultuous moments, if we cultivate trust in others and in uncertainty, and if we can stay calm and focused, we might experience grace and joy while riding the waves of change. We might even find that we are drawn to change when we feel confident in our ability to navigate its waters and that we are happier and more resilient when we return to dry land. <laughs>